action. Welcome to Taunt Stubbs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We are continuing our celebration of 21st century horror with The Lighthouse, directed by Robert Eggers. And this time, with a guest, please welcome back to the pod from last episode, Mike Munzer from the Evolution of Horror podcast. Mike, welcome back. Welcome back. (laughs) Hello, thanks for having me back. (laughs) Thanks for coming on again. Mike, here's a question. What makes Mm. a film 21st century horror what are the genres that really stick out over the past 20 years that pinpoint horror in the 21st century? Oh, it's really hard that. I, I think maybe you'd have to, you'd almost have to split it in half, I would say. I think that there is a, a very much a style from the first decade uh, of the 2000s and that, that was pretty pretty nasty horror. Uh, I, I think that the, there was a sort of, a lot of people kind of... Um, uh, sort of suggest that maybe it was off the back of 9-11 and uh, various other quite horrible things going on in the world. But horror, other people think it was maybe just a backlash to glossy 90s uh, horror Ooh. as well. But horror became very gritty, very grainy, very nasty, hostile, sore, uh, new French extremity like martyrs. Yeah. Um, oh, there God. was a lot of like, there was a lot of extreme, gory, unrelenting stuff in mm. in the in the 2000s and then that almost exactly at the turn of the decade at around 2010 we suddenly had the beginning of the paranormal activity series mm. and then we had insidious and the conjuring and suddenly horror swung back the other way to going from very gory to being very ghost train like again mm-hmm. um And I think it may have even changed again over the last five or six years. I think because of movies like The Babadook, The Witch, Hereditary, Midsummer, Get Out, uh, movies that I guess a lot of people now call elevated horror, quote unquote, which is this idea that maybe they are more about human drama. Maybe they've got something uh, sort of political to say, or they've got something, they're exploring the human condition maybe in some way or another, but using genre to do that. Uh, and I think that's been a very, very popular trend and wave over the last sort of half a decade, at least. Mm. Oddly, the last 20 years, you could say, have been bookended by two very different 70s-influenced movements. Mm-hmm. Those sort of gritty, down in the dirt, rusty, dirty horror mm. films, very much like early Wes Craven, yeah. Uh, yeah. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But then this kind of socially conscious, political, got something to say horror dramas is also very seventies. Mm. The Exorcist, yeah. Yeah. The Omen, or even as as you know, it's late sixties. But I think rosemary's baby kind of set the tone yeah. for what the 70s could become mm. yeah so it's strange that it all that. links back to the 70s it does it, it, it's often considered by a lot of horror fans as the the, the golden age of horror i yeah. think the yeah. 70s particularly sort of maybe 1968 to 1978 from sort of night of the living dead and rosemary's baby through to sort of halloween uh, is a real kind of amazing period and like you said 
that's exactly right it's it's this mix of kind of very political very uh very angry filmmakers and films i think kind of reacting to everything from watergate to vietnam to whatever Mm. else was going on uh either with really grainy really scuzzy really nasty movies or more commercial more highbrow movies but also ones that are reacting to that in some way yeah Mm. and 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 i absolutely i think that's the same now we've had probably trump era horror we've had we had iraq (laughs) war post 9-11 horror you know so i think that's all been there in the background of this Mm. as well and i would imagine within a year or two we're going to get all the pandemic oh god flared horrors the locked the locked room horrors I, I think that's true. I think that when I think people would rather watch a lockdown film than a pandemic film. Yeah. Um, you, you know, like I think uh, horror. I personally would rather watch a, something that's slightly more escapist. Like uh, I think Host last oh, year was brilliant. an amazing was yeah. an amazing example of this, where they absolutely took uh, uh, took the idea of the pandemic, but it wasn't really about the virus. It wasn't about coronavirus. Mm. It wasn't about a horrible illness wiping people out. I don't think we were ready to watch a horror film about that yet, you know. <laughs> but making a haunted house movie that was set in zoom because everyone was in lockdown on their own in the house was a really fun way of doing something different with the the haunted house genre yeah mm. so we might see more of that that's a really good point yeah what comes next you know we if we if we push past the pandemic the reaction to the pandemic in the horror genre what comes next if we're currently sitting mm. at elevated we're probably probably about to go into covid horror films or spun off from that what's next do we go back to eli roth do we go to something like john carpenter i think you can never underestimate the power of nostalgia Mm. and uh i think that like um those kind of waves those cycles so in the early 2000s we had a return to that sort of grimy 70s look during the 2010s we did have a lot of 80s nostalgia from it follows to the guest to all of these movies that really looked like deliberately like they were trying to do john carpenter and people Mm. like that and I, th- I wonder if we're actually going to start to see a sort of 90s slash noughties nostalgia. Oh, definitely. Like, uh, we, we've had a new The Craft film. Mm-hmm. We've got a new Scream film coming yeah. out. We've just had a new Wrong Turn movie. Yeah. Uh, we're about to have a new Candyman, a yeah. new Hellraiser. We've got a new Halloween film. So actually, maybe just all of these old classic properties are going to start to make a comeback. But the yeah. problem well, with know? that, that feels like a snake eating a snake that's already eating its own tail <laughs> because the yeah, 90s absolutely. stuff and that that late 90s slasher was so rooted in nostalgia for the 80s <laughs> and the 70s mm. before so we're going to have nostalgia for a period that was nostalgic about a period beforehand <laughs> yeah. when does it mm. end i hope we well, don't this go is it. slasher because i doesn't. I can't bear them. <laughs> I don't think it would ever be just a traditional slasher, but they might do some sort of twist on it. But you're absolutely right. And this is exactly why I do the podcast that I do, because everything comes from or has evolved from something that came a decade before it. And and you can look at that over and over and over and over again, mm. all the way to the birth of horror, is that these things come in waves they repeat what they've done before but maybe they do a slight twist on it or add something new and it sort of changes that way Mm. um but yeah who knows other than that and also technology is always changing so there's always new ways you know found footage became a big thing imax imax stuff you know it all it 
it all lends itself to reinvention and rebirth i think yeah definitely and like um, like we said even the technology that's within the context of the story like the recent invisible man yeah exactly yeah Mm -hmm. mike what film would you say has had the most impact on the genre uh, what of the tw- of the twenty first century? Well, the the film that's had the most the horror film throughout the entire history of horror film. What would, oh my God. What's had the most <laughs> impact? What is still having the impact today in the twenty first century? It's really hard. Uh, I, you know, I'd be tempted to to say dracula in 1931 Mm. in a way because that's the thing that started it all but you know films aren't necessarily still looking like dracula Mm. uh maybe john carpenter's halloween maybe or maybe uh psycho alfred hitchcock's psycho i don't know not gus van (laughs) i mean maybe um inseparable or night of the living or night of the living dead perhaps as well you Mm. know that really did kind of reinvent horror completely in a way um and we're still seeing films that are kind of in some way like night of the living dead Mm. you know so that that to me as well that original night of living dead film feels with impact just like Orson Welles' uh, War of the Worlds mm. radio broadcast mm. because it yeah. was so. It just feels so not a film. It feels so news footage and newsreel yeah. that yeah. how could you not even just a little bit think this could this could just be real? Mm-hmm. The things yeah, I'm seeing exactly. could be real. The fact it's in yeah. black and white helps massively. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was one of the first films to really kind of put monsters in the real world, modern world. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, it wasn't sort of Transylvanian castles or, you know, other worldly places or creatures or people. Um, of course, Psycho had done this already as well. But A Night of the Living Dead took real classic horror with monsters, flesh-eating monsters, mm. but put it in a kind of real world American 1968 mm. news footage, National Guard, t- you know, like yeah. it, it, like you said, it looks like news footage. Um, and that had never really been done before. On this episode, we're going to talk about the lighthouse. Joshua. Uh, It's the late 1800s and two very different men arrive at a remote island off the coast of New England to tend to its lighthouse. Uh, There's stoic Ephraim Winslow, played by Robert Pattinson, who is an ex-timberyard worker who's looking for a new start. While Thomas Wake, played by Willem Dafoe, is a salty old sea dog who's been doing this for years. Uh, when a raging storm prevents them from leaving, though, the pair become stranded with only seagulls and bottles of liquor for company. Pretty soon, their pressure cooker environment begins to roast them alive. Uh, so this is the the second feature directed by Robert Eggers. And but it actually started he actually started writing it before he made The Witch. So he had such trouble getting funding for The Witch that he was kind of looking to move into doing this with his brother Max. Um, And then when The Witch got funding, it got pushed. But I think that that's possibly the best thing that could have happened, because I feel like this film really benefits from the bigger budget. And this you can feel the confidence that Robert Eggers has gained from the success of the witch you know he knows what he's doing is going to have an effect and i think that really sort of p- 
per- permeates the entire film. Yeah, and actually, it, it means that I think probably a lot more people saw the lighthouse too. Absolutely, you, you could imagine, couldn't you? If this had just been made by somebody completely unknown, mm. it would have been this tiny, tiny little art house movie that may never have gone beyond festivals, almost. Definitely. You know, whereas instead, it's this, it's the follow-up film to The Witch. Mm. So, uh, and it stars Robert Pattinson as well. So, and a it's lot people going people crazy again. And <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It does um, feel yeah, like they've so. been made the wrong way around because you would normally start off your career with a an art house oddity like this and then go on and make something like mm. the Vavitch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, or you could see it as that that kind of classic thing where a director has one really successful movie and then they do a follow-up that's for them. You know, they the, they do their weird little personal <laughs> film that yeah, comes so after the blockbuster. We often, well, you know, we've often draw. spoken about on this podcast that this sort of thing happens. You know, yeah. it's almost like the curse of the second movie. And mm. it doesn't have to be yeah. someone's actual second movie. It's just the next movie after they've made it big, yeah. whether it's yeah. their, their yeah. first movie or not. So we've had things like, um, you know, after Goodwill Hunting, Gus Van Sant, who'd been a filmmaker for like 10, 15 years, suddenly had all the money in Hollywood and he decided to completely indulge himself by making a remake, shot for shot, of Psycho. Mm. Then you had mm-hmm. Nicholas Winding Refn, who'd made films before, but he'd had mm. this big hit with Drive, and then he went off and did Only God Forgives. Yeah. The guy who did yeah. It Follows went and did Under the Silver Lake. Yeah. And Ari Aster went off and did Midsummer. <laughs> and was it, is it Dan or Tony Gilroy who did Nightcrawler and then did... Uh, Buzz, or, uh, Velvet Buzz, Buzz yeah, which yeah. is not <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that that definitely falls foul of the curse of the second film. Does mm. this film fall foul of that? Oh, I, mm, I don't know. I don't. I can't make up my mind whether <laughs> this is a really whether this is a masterpiece or just a load of nonsense. <laughs> to be honest, like I. I, I I've seen it. I've only seen this twice now, um, so I'm not kind of as immediately familiar with it as The Witch. But um, it, in some ways, technically, it's beautiful. It's as stunning as The Witch. I think, mm. like in terms of creating that mood, creating that soundscape, the set design. From the second you're dropped into this world, with the loud droning noise of the ship and the waves, and that horrible dripping interior of the lighthouse, mm. two amazing performances. It looks authentic. It feels um, just stunning um but the the story is very difficult to to kind of grasp isn't Mm -hmm. it it's like kind of you kind of don't really know where it's going from one scene to the next and and i you know it it kind of it meanders a little bit and i guess it's not quite as straightforward as the witch that was firmly placed in sort of the horror genre um it's just a bit more art house, I suppose, yeah. in a way. But um, but I don't think it's a bad film by any means. I don't think it's like a poor follow-up effort in any way. It just, it's a different kind of film and it's a different kind of tone, isn't it? Mm. It's a strange one. When I first saw it, I felt I didn't hate it. Mm. I did enjoy elements, but I think my overriding feeling was I appreciated it more than I liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. now I've seen it three times. So in the cinema what, a year ago, February? Then I saw it, I watched it in December, and then I watched it yesterday, and then the rest of it today. I genuinely felt I enjoyed it in December. I felt it quite tedious mm. to get through 
this time around maybe because i did watch it back to back with the witch and that's a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. that's a you know that's yeah. a tough double feature to get through when you're tired and it's all quite depressing and bleak as well isn't it yeah it's yeah it's quite yeah it's like watching um th- igmar bergman back to back well that's exactly what this film is it's like an on acid igmar bergman where it's like persona <laughs> it meets through a glass darkly with mermaids you know it's just it is so true and and, and a bit of a razor david lynch is a razor head in there, oh yeah, yeah. I think possibly yeah, as well definitely. um it i think what really saves it in a way from just feeling a bit too ponderous like a razorhead actually is that it's got comedy i think mm. it really really mm. made me laugh out loud like both times i've seen it whether it's just like fart jokes yeah. or like the 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 Your big monologues or just wi- yeah <laughs> you don't like me you don't like me lobster you know that would make me laugh <laughs> you like the lobster don't you cooking. <laughs> I love it so much. So, like, actually, there are moments of it that are really fun and broad and really yeah. accessible. And, and, and that, but that's what makes it so strange, like, sort of just yeah. getting your head around what is this film that I'm watching, you know? And then there's mermaids and evil seagulls and, yeah. like, what is happening? A you random know, it's, uh, bleached it's hair man. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, yeah. a, a, a like, a, a head in the wooden mm, neck. In the lobster catcher. In the lobster yeah. catcher. And there's damp in the the what's it? Damp in the he comes in. He says something along the lines of, "There's damp in oh, the, in the, the, food or the in the food cellar or something or the something yeah. like yeah. that, like in the parodicals or something." <laughs> but the performances God. are are you know if Stunning. if the film made sense and if they had a budget to do an Oscars campaign, that's the these are the sort of mm. acting. Uh, performances that get awards because they, yeah. especially Willem Dafoe, he is phenomenal. The thing about Willem Dafoe, regardless what he's in, you always feel that there could be a switch and he could just cut your throat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh god, yeah, yeah. He's terrifying. Yeah. and really funny. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way you sort of change your opinion about both of them because then actually you start to think towards the end. Oh, actually, Robert Pattinson is actually pretty dangerous and yeah. quite terrifying. You know, and uh, it's really interesting the sort of power dynamics between them and the way that shifts and changes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just there's so much to actually really enjoy and admire about it, but it's just it's just getting your head around what you're actually watching. I think, particularly yeah. the first time rounds. But know? that was like that was a completely intentional thing. I, I think that there were apparently there were sc- earlier scripts that kind of that Eggers deemed too clear or like too obvious about what was really going on. So he just stripped stuff out because he really wanted the audience to become as and you know crazy and and confused as winslow ends up being so in that in that sense i I completely respect that that refusal to actually do anything completely comprehensive (laughs) do you feel that absolutely do you feel that's the uh the influence of the shining because the shining is one of those films where you're not really sure what's going on and you Mm. kind of get the idea that maybe kubrick didn't know what he wanted to say <laughs> with that film because it's obviously vastly different to the book and you know jack starts off mad and just gets madder um mm, but yeah but yeah. with the shining it's it's very much a a series of incidents and that's kind of what the lighthouse is 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think this is um, something that I've talked about in the most recent season of my podcast is sort of these sort of psychological horror films, horror films about madness. Mm. And what happens is with horror films about madness, filmmakers have free reign to just be as like weird as possible mm. because you're, you're, you're put inside the head of somebody going insane. And The Shining is quite a good example of that. There's also movies like Repulsion, like you said, Persona, uh, you know, all of that sort of thing um, going all the way back mm. to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari even yeah. is, is that. And and uh, the lighthouse is absolutely that, isn't it? And it does that brilliantly. Like it puts you in the mind of somebody who is losing their mind, basically. Mm. And so I suppose that's it. Not everything has to make sense. Not everything has to be completely consistent in that way. And it really does uh, put across that feeling very well. I think that you you just you feel completely. You feel like you've you've gone through a breakdown or something by the end of it. You know. <laughs> well, which yeah. one is losing their mind? Which one would you say is the sane one? And which one is the I, one that is going absolutely do lally? I think I see it for some reason as Robert Pattinson's story. Uh, I see it as him, as his descent into madness, I suppose. And that we're kind of with him um, in it, you know. Um, but I don't know that for sure. Well, because yeah. you kind of see very early on, you, you see, you get insight into his dreams. And, you know, when he's wading into the sea and the logs come in, and it's really quite this, yeah. this gorgeously ominous um, kind of memory is it's him remembering some kind of past deed or some kind of guilt that is resurfacing obviously there's lots of oceanic metaphors in the film um, so I think that because we're yeah. in his in his head in that sense we see scenes where um, Willem Dafoe's character is asleep and Robert Pattinson is kind of awake and doing stuff and like kind of preying on him slightly I think it is his film but yeah so it is him going mad I don't think we actually... And the film sort of starts when he arrives, right, at the lighthouse as yeah. well. And I don't think that we really... I'm trying to think off the top of my head. We see lots of scenes with him by himself without Willem Dafoe, mm. whether he's, you know, having a cheeky wank or something. But, like, we don't <laughs> we don't see many scenes with Willem Dafoe without him, I don't yeah. think. Uh, um, so I think it is... We are kind of rooted from his perspective uh, in a way, I guess. I don't think yeah. we see any Willem Dafoe without... No. Robert Patterson being nearby, no. even up in, we in find, the light. We see him spying on him. It's always through... Yeah, we his... well, we we don't see, do we, what Willem Dafoe's up to when he's no. up at the top of the lighthouse yeah. or anything. You know, it's... it's Yeah, we don't get that perspective. But the, the only thing that I think kind of is from... Uh, what's his name? Wakes? Um, yeah. His perspective is... Willem Dafoe's? Yeah, is, the, is this kind of suggestion that perhaps he's gay there's like some kind of repressed sexuality going on you know as the film progresses yeah. he starts to take on traditionally uh feminine uh kind of characteristics like he knits and he talks he's sensitive about his cooking and he tells pattinson that he's really beautiful and attractive and what's he doing there and there's obviously yeah. the moment when they're <laughs> drunk out of their out of their minds and then there's like that almost kiss that happens so the yeah i think that there is kind of some of his perspective happening but it, it's glimpses it's all very refracted through i was the other i was going to ask here. if there's a queer reading to this film because patterson patterson spies defoe's bum and he lingers on mm. whatever defoe's doing either either defoe is asleep and he's sort of just shifting but it kind of looks like he's grinding mm. into the mattress but patterson stays and watches and you'd think someone of the time would be repulsed by that and it would be a case of i've got to get off this rock 
now because I'm mm. there with one of these Nancy boys. But there's also a question. There's also a question. He says, do you feel shame when you lie with a woman? Mm. I ain't ashamed of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely think there is a yeah. a queer reading to this film. And there's also the bit who goes, you don't like me cooking. Yeah. Yeah, totally. They become like an old married couple, yeah, they don't do. they, yeah. in a way? And William Defoe is like the, the housewife or something. You know, they're like Bert and Ernie, these kind of two characters <laughs> that end up I in would some watch sort that. of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, that's well, what it feels like, isn't it? Or the, like, there's something almost sitcommy about uh-huh. it in a way, like a step toe and son. They sit there having like their that, dinner you know? together, and yeah, yeah. That, that, and that's what's so strange about the film tonally is that there is that element to it as well. But yeah, there's definitely a kind of queer subtext, I would say, to mm. that, um, and 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 also. I guess also it just comes down to the fact that these are two men that have had no contact with women or any mm. other human being in God knows how long as well. I, yeah. mean, I suppose that is all just playing into it as well. Mm. Yeah. How long have we been on this rock? Five weeks? <laughs> two days? Eggers <laughs> did say so um, in an interview when he was asked to describe what the film was, he did say, uh, nothing good can happen when two men are trapped alone in a giant phallus. So I think he was definitely <laughs> playing around with some of that imagery. Well, it's so true, isn't it? He's coming, yeah, it's so he's true. He's coming at that from a cishet white perspective. Yeah, Thank he is. you. <laughs> but he was actually, he was uh, sort of kind of ordered by A24 and the uh, financiers to remove. Uh, a lot of full frontal male nudity including erections because he was he wanted to play with this image of the lighthouse moving and then it kind of becomes an erect penis so (laughs) there is that there is that during it's either it's either the the wanking scene or um when he's imagining fucking the mermaid that Mm. the 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 lighthouse image is spinning and it sort of comes right oh up. yeah that's there true is that. so there is a little bit of that yeah oh, just hit my microphone. that's how angry i am there's a, there is a little bit of that still left in there are the characters real are they even are they even real people when they first arrive the the two lighthouse keepers who are leaving who are being relieved by our characters they don't even get acknowledged by them as they walk by it's almost like they can't see them and <laughs> the old two can't see our two. Well, are they are so, they ghosts? Yeah, is this? I mean, is this a ghost story in the the, the grand tradition of The Shining? Mm. I think it very easily could be a ghost yeah. story. Definitely, I thought that, that that there is this feeling that you know the black and white it it doesn't just look like those sorts of um, Bergman films. It could also look like a film like The Innocents or The Haunting Seventh or something. Seal and I think as well. there is a yeah, there is a there is a feeling of these two people trapped in eternity together, yeah. you know, that maybe that is they're in some sort of purgatory or hell, you know, again, mm. going back to The Witch, maybe all of these films that Eggers is making is about people trapped in hell of some yeah. sort, you know, I don't know, but I think that could easily be be a reading of this film as well. Mm. Yeah. Is it the Eggers cinematic universe? <laughs> yeah maybe maybe it's like different layers of hell is each each of his films or something you know oh god yeah there's a scene where and it's quite early on winston played by robert patterson kills a seagull and we've already been told it's bad luck to kill a seabird because the seabirds contain the souls of dead lighthouse keepers so yeah has has he sealed his fate and their fate in that moment? Because 
Mm. We see him kill the seagull. Then the camera moves. It goes up the full length of the lighthouse to the wind thing on the top. And the wind changes Mm. 180 Mm. degrees. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Should we feel sympathy for Robert Patterson's character? Is it possible to feel sympathy for these characters? Do you feel any connection to these characters? I do actually like I do feel quite a lot of warmth between both mm. these guys like towards both these guys I, I don't know why there's something just quite like I don't know there's something just very human in a way about both of them I think um so I do and I do think that's absolutely a possibility as well like the witch this could be a very face value folk tale or cautionary tale of this man who killed a seabird and is then punished for it essentially you know um it could easily just be that as well you know i wouldn't put it past robert eggers to actually just make a story like that at very face value and i don't think he's that worried about dealing with metaphors and subtext necessarily is he maybe Mm. i think maybe he is telling the story as he wants to tell it but But there is that weird little kind of almost an, an aside, a visual aside where the, the seagull that he kills only has one eye. And then when Robert Pattinson drags up the severed head in the, in the lobster basket, that also only has one eye. So there's like a, some people and have when Robert Pattinson's that dead at the end, he's only got one eye. Yeah, exactly. So there's a whole, there's stuff yeah. going on there. I definitely yeah. think, and again, it could be it could be literal, right? That yeah. there are souls of people inside the seagulls yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think I definitely yeah. enjoyed it more. Just kind of going with the, he killed a seagull, therefore he's doomed them like that, because that comes round yeah. full circle with the final shot. So, it, I mean, it, again, it comes back to like what you guys were saying about your kind of cheesy haunted house movies like you disturb the ancient mm. indian indian burial ground and then <laughs> shit goes down yeah. basically and, and, and in a way it could be read as that as a very simple haunted but that's house because story, they you know? they moved the the headstones but they didn't move the bodies <laughs> yeah <laughs> you only move the headstones how do you explain the, the headlights coming out of defoe's eyes Oh, well, I mean, it's based on a painting. <laughs> I don't know well, much apart more from than that. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is he? Is he very much? Is he the lighthouse? Is he the ghost? Is he the spirit? Is he the Overlook mm. Hotel? Well, I kind he of, could be. I kind of viewed it as slightly like, is is Wake there? because he is basically looking to get a confession out of Winslow. You know, the, the, one of the first things he says is, you're a timber yard worker, what are you doing here kind of thing? And, and then he gradually, gradually manages to get this confession out of Wake, which is, uh, out of Winslow, which is basically, I killed someone. Um, and it's like, well, is the, the, the light shining on Winslow sort of symbolic of the fact that he can't hide anymore? He's got, he, this guy has seen him now. He's seen him completely and utterly. And um, there's nothing he can do about that apart from kill him as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even thought of that as a reading. Like, is that why he kind of yeah. messes with time? You know, he starts going, it's been, it's been five weeks or whatever. And it's like, well, has it been five weeks? Has it been two days? How long? This guy didn't never drank before. So now that he's suddenly drinking like bloody uh, 
I mean, who <laughs> Pat Butcher or whatever, you know, it's like <laughs> suddenly he's coughed up a confession in a day, basically. Yeah, very possibly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think I think when I watch this film, I'm 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 just sort of letting it wash over me because I'm not I haven't thought about any of this. I'll be honest. <laughs> like I kind of just like take it at face value. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. I think there's just there's just so much packed in there that if you start digging yeah. you find shitloads of stuff but if you just kind of take it as oh it's a, it's a fable about nature gone wild and that's equally okay I think. Yeah. yeah yeah provisions yeah. that's what he said provisions, provisions. <laughs> got to the provisions provisions that's my brain that's my brain yeah. um <laughs> it could be that willem defoe is the ferryman if we're going on this mm. this seven levels of hell idea he's the ferryman and he's bringing people to the island he's bringing people to hell so this mm. person who's been killed before did willem defoe kill that person how does willem defoe know that when you kill us a, a lighthouse keeper his soul goes into a seagull how many mm. more people have been killed by willem defoe how many more people will be killed by Willem Dafoe because seemingly Willem Dafoe is dead in the ditch and chewing mm. oh it was vile oh, chewing on that yeah. sort of mud and as that was happening my mouth was filling with saliva yeah, I know but, it's so horrible and we think he's dead but then yeah. in the next scene he's not he's coming in at Robert Winston with a with an axe you know like Jack mm-hmm. Torrance mm-hmm. how do we know he's not dead how do we know that if there was going to be a sequel, it would be Willem Dafoe bringing another person. How do we know mm. if, if time has no meaning? And there's only one clock in this film and it gets punched, mm. right? Yeah. Time has yeah. no meaning. How do we know that... A, how do we know that the film is happening in the order that it's being presented? Mm-hmm. And how do we know that things just don't loop back to the beginning and the boat is arriving with Willem Dafoe and another young guy... Oh, I don't like it. I think that's definitely possible, isn't it? It goes back to the idea that this is some sort of um, afterlife, some sort of purgatory, mm. some sort of waiting place for another life or something like that. Mm-hmm. Isn't there some sort of backstory where Robert Pattinson talks about working on some field or something? Uh, am I dreaming this? Did he say so? <laughs> is there something that suggests what he... Or like he talks about a job he used to do before he came to the lighthouse or something? Oh, he was a timber yard worker. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, there are probably some readings to be had that maybe somehow he died there and then mm. now he's here, you know, and this is some sort of afterlife or something. Mm. Who knows? How long have we been recording this podcast? Five weeks? <laughs> Two days? Yeah. <laughs> Five years? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we should talk about the lighthouse. <laughs> no. Are we are we supposed to find Robert Robert Pattinson really quite attractive in this film? Because I found him really yeah. sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think we are because you know he's he's, real he works fetish, out. he's, really he's wearing that kind of that sort of sleeveless shorts onesie, and yeah, he's got the waders on. I guess so. I mean, like you you wouldn't cast our Pats, would you, unless you wanted him to have that sort of. I guess, but mm. I don't know. But also, they're both pretty gross, aren't they? Like <laughs> as this film progresses, they're both pretty. Oh yeah, oh, he's they're both pretty grim, shit, isn't he? But... You smell like shit. Yeah, <laughs> quite repulsive. Yeah. I love yeah. the film stock. I love what they've done with the processing because all the reds in the frame 
appear black so that's why their skin looks all mm. sort of clay like and clammy and anytime there's blood on the mouth it looks like squid oil just smeared across their face mm-hmm. it's such mm-hmm. a cool look and it it looks like those sorts of films that bbc2 would play on a saturday afternoon <laughs> yeah. like an old cowboy film that they had no choice but to shoot it like that yet Robert Eggers, the thing I like about him is he is pure cinema. He has no problem really leaning into what the medium is Mm. capable of. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. we spoke on the witch episode about the fact that he chose a ratio, uh, aspect ratio that was taller than it was wider so he could get the trees in. Yeah. If he was working in the studio system, you know, his next film is going to be The Northman or The Mm. Northman. I don't know if it's Goldman or Spider-Man. Northman (laughs) with Anna Taylor Joy so that's obviously going to be another Robert Eggers joint Mm. where can he go next is he the sort of filmmaker that could relinquish a little bit of his personal identity and do a Star Wars like Ryan Johnson or do whatever Marvel film he wants to do or could he do you know could he take a big sci-fi book like dune or something like that neuromancer maybe and make it his own but within the studio system where suddenly he's got a budget of 70 80 90 100 million dollars and suddenly he's got to listen to some asshole in a suit saying well hang on people in china need to watch this as well so none of your weird <laughs> shit is he that sort of filmmaker that can pivot is he a sam Ramy? god i hope not <laughs> <laughs> i i just want to see him make the films that he wants to make yeah. forever because yeah. I, I like I don't know he's so good he really is very good he's got he's clearly impeccable at the craft of filmmaking so maybe he could if he got hired to do a studio um kind of mainstream movie maybe he could abandon the stuff that he's done in the lighthouse and actually do something conventional but I kind of hope that he keeps doing his own weird and wonderful stuff mm. because I don't think, and I don't even care if it's horror or not. I don't even know whether we'd call the lighthouse horror or not. But I think whatever he does, this mood, this feel, this atmosphere, uh, these characters, this dialogue, this production design, the way he shoots and lights things, I love it. And I I hope he continues. I I heard, you know, I think for a while there's been a rumour that he was going to do a Nosferatu film. That was, yeah, Uh, that that was his, he was signed on to that almost as immediately when the witch hit big and then mm, suddenly yeah. he came out with the lighthouse so I, it clearly didn't happen mm. but i'm almost glad it didn't happen because the nosferatu yes. is, it's not his it's always going to no. be compared to someone else he's going to be mm. working in someone else's shadow yeah yeah you're right i mean i don't know i mean i'm sure he'd do a great job of that i mean you could see how you you could see how he would do a good job, I think, with something like Nosferatu. Yeah. But he yeah, could just cast Willem Dafoe like... again. He's already played him. Yeah, <laughs> done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be an easy job, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah, was it Nosferatu two thousand or something. No, like it was that? like Shadow of the Vampire or something like that, wasn't it? That yeah, was that in. was it. I think he's just um, Robert Eggers is just the master at uh, sort of um, evoking a time and a place, isn't he? Mm. More than anything else, and in that's every what I detail, love every him. grain of the film is like the dialogue, yeah. the sound, the visuals. It's such perfectly yeah. calibrated. What I don't want mm. to happen, I don't want the studio system to take Robert. Robert, I don't want the studio system to take Robert Eggers, and clean him up make him shiny make him Mm. so slick 
that he almost loses his voice because that's kind of what I feel has happened with Ryan Johnson. There is a vast difference between Knives Out and a film like Brick and a film, Mm. even a film like Looper, which for all intents and purposes is a studio film, but it definitely feels like the indie end of things where it's a bit grubby. It's definitely a Ryan Johnson film. If Knives Out had been made straight after Brick, it wouldn't have been so clean. It wouldn't have been so Mm. brightly lit. And it would have been, it would have felt a lot down in the dirt. It wouldn't have felt as high up and elevated as it was. I I would hate Mm -hmm. to see that happen to Robert Eggers. Yeah, I, I, again, I find it so hard to imagine him being that. I don't know, because I think even Ryan Johnson in his early days, he had a kind of a love of, of kind of mainstream cinema and genre. Even with Brick, like you felt like he had that the makings of a, of a real kind of populist genre filmmaker, even as weird as Brick was. Yeah. Mm. Uh, kind of like early Tarantino or something, yeah. right? And, and I don't, I don't, th- I think Robert Eggers is too far the other way. Definitely. I think he's too art house. It's, it's, it's more David Lynch, Ingmar Bergman. Mm. And those people don't, I mean, David Lynch famously, when he tried to do a Dune movie, it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, and I, I don't know whether Robert Eggers would be similar to that in a way. Like he maybe just needs to do his own thing. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, too much like, of an like well, that's yeah. it so like lynch if the mainstream and lynch are going to play together the mainstream have to bend to lynch's yeah. wills like with the recent twin peaks series so if robert eggers yeah. ever did that say a 12-part miniseries on tv it's probably mm. going to be like nicholas winding reffin doing too too old to die or whatever it is on amazon it's going to mm, be yeah. very much a robert eggers joint Mm. yeah i would say so and he's definitely you know of these kind of new wave of horror filmmakers we've got you know he's often included in conversation with people like jordan peele ari aster mm. uh mike flanagan maybe but he's certainly the most art house and the least mainstream of all of those yeah. i think you know that's the thing or jordan peele is now this superstar and he's doing the twilight zone and lovecraft country and all these other things yeah i mean i wouldn't put, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't personally call jordan peele a horror writer do you think really no. wow because mm. yeah. they're not they're not scary they're not to me they're not presented as horror they're just sort of thriller semi comedies interesting mm. okay but this is um, this is yeah. pure horror the imagery in this film is so based and rooted in horror down to the lighting mm. down to the montages down to the sound design that scream at the mm. end where he's he's bathed in all that light it's mm. this is it's pure psychological horror yeah it is absolutely but it's yeah uh, it's it's not mainstream horror though yeah. it's not I, I mean i would say that jordan peele is horror and actually is more horror that people normal cinema goers i would say that normal cinema goers would call jordan peele more horror than robert eggers personally but what scares jordan, you more uh, robert eggers is too sorry what scares you more as a filmic experience, which film did yeah, you no. feel more unnerved and scared in? Totally, uh, uh, the witch, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You're you're hundred percent right about that. But uh, uh, I think that um, 
Jordan Peele is kind of placed more firmly in the genre, maybe, um, in the same way that, uh, yeah, people like Mike, Mike Flanagan and James Wan are as well. Mm, yeah. But but you're absolutely right. Robert Eggers makes scary stuff. So does David Lynch. He makes terrifying stuff. But I wouldn't necessarily call him a horror filmmaker, um, mm. potentially. You know, he he does, he's he's more on the cusp, isn't he? So it's, it's a tricky thing. Mm, I think it's yeah. all very reliant on the tone of of Robert Eggers' third film because I feel like The Witch and the Lighthouse yes. is so wrapped up in the same obsessions and the same themes yes. and ideas that we don't really know what Robert Eggers, uh, you know, how he's going to progress. You know, it, both of these films are about insanity and isolation and nature going wild and they're they're very much of a type, but, but we kind of need to see more to understand how he can diversify that and if he even wants to like is he just going to make films about people losing their minds in the wilderness you know well look at david lynch's first two films he went from a razorhead which has a black and white very industrial aesthetic and then he did the elephant man which is black and Mm. white very heavy industrial aesthetic more Mm. of a a um accessible story but then his, mm. if we skip over Dune, because that really wasn't his, really, was it? He was mm. a gun for hire. His next film after that is Blue Velvet. And that's where he put his stab. That's like, ah, now I know mm. what I'm doing. You know, mm. when a band, usually it takes like two, three albums for a band to get in the swing of things. Yeah. The third album is usually, oh, this is who Queen are. This is who Kiss is. This mm-hmm. is what Duran Duran's mm-hmm. all about. Yeah. Obviously, all my references are 40 years old. <laughs> this is what Gina yeah. G's all about. <laughs> <laughs> that was The Lighthouse, directed by Robert Eggers. Um, Joshua, you can't give us a clue because we don't know what our next film's going to be. It's a mystery. It's the mystery. Uh, Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Acast and Spotify so you don't miss any of our episodes. Mike, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my podcast, The Evolution of Horror, uh, Spotify, Apple, all the normal places. And you can follow us on Twitter at EvolutionPod. Oh, yeah, we're on Twitter as well. Uh, we're at Tornstubs Pod. Give us a shout. We're off to find the provisions. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. And I'm Mike Munzer. Cut! Cut!